Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. This is your host, Spencer Martin from the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. Apologies for the little break. I was sick and did not want to make people suffer through listening to me being sick. This week, we are back with Kate Wagner. She is the author of the newsletter, Derailer.net. She is probably one of the best cycling writers today. When it comes to writer profiles, she did a breakout profile of Primoz Roglic for Bicycling Magazine that launched her into cycling writing superstardom. She has since turned into somewhat of a bit of a Slovenian whisperer. She is at at least as far as English language journalist goes, one of, uh, I, w- I would actually not say one of, but she is the foremost authority on all things Slovenia. So it's really interesting to get her take on that, like the massive amount of talent coming out of that country, obviously with Primoz Roglic and Tadej Pogacar, but as well as writers like Mane Motoric and the youth wave coming up and out of the country. So really interesting to get her take on it. Also, she has just such a different different take on on the sport of professional cycling than I do. I almost try to be disconnected from the athletes. I don't want to know very much about their personal lives. I only want to dissect performance and, you know, what can increase performance gains or what is causing riders to suffer performance decreases or holding them back performance-wise. Um, I, I don't like getting into their personal lives and, and knowing who they are. She is the complete opposite. She really gets up in there and almost do the, these character studies of, of each writer. So it's kind of a, it's interesting for me. I, I love reading her newsletter because it's such a different view of pro cycling that, than I have. She also writes for Pro Cycling Magazine and Cycling News, which are um, kind of like sister sister businesses, sister businesses, sister publications. Uh, both are very good. Um, I, I would say catch her writing wherever you can. She was also the third host of this of the cycling podcast at this last year's Tour de France. For anyone who knows, that is that is like the gold standard podcast. So, so to be able to jump in and be a host on there is is really interesting. She also has an a strange background for cycling. She was an architecture critic. She was a classically trained musician for the first 20 years of her life and then switched to architecture criticism and then got into pro cycling during COVID. So um, super interesting story, really interesting take on on the sport and the riders and and the and the personal lives you know b- behind the performances. Um, but before we get into that, if you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com is a free edition. If you like the podcast, that's a no-brainer. Sign up for that right now. There's a paid edition. The main main perk of that is it comes out daily during Grand Tours and um, also every other major race. Um, you also get three editions during the slow winter months where I kind of, uh, things get a little bit more fun, a little bit more loose. I break down a lot of the goings-ons behind the sport. So sign up for that today at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. All right, let's get into the interview with Kate. Kate, thanks for, thanks for coming on. It's great to have you. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to start by a, giving you a compliment. I think you're the best, probably the best profile, cyclist profile writer currently, and it's not even close. <laughs> um, I just kind of spent the morning going back and reading your, um, your work on Primus Roglic, and it is, it is really incredible stuff. Um, kind of the way you mix like the personal of both the subject, but then also yourself, you kind of weave it into... Um, this larger narrative. It, it's really impressive. It's like a breath of fresh air in cycling, um, which if I'm correct, you just recently got into in a professional capacity. Yeah, that's true. Uh, do you want to 
talk about that for a second? Like how long have you been writing about cycling? So I started writing about cycling after Roglic lost the Tour de France uh, in 2020, which was like devastating. <laughs> uh, and so I, I wrote a piece actually, and I published it on Medium uh, about why I felt that that loss was particularly devastating. And uh, it ended up getting picked up by bicycling and they ran it uh, on their web platform. And that's how I started work with them specifically, mostly about Roglic. I did some other stuff for them about e-racing at the time, uh, but it was just like kind of um, a ancillary source of income for me because at the time I was still working full-time as an architecture critic. And during the pandemic, uh, pretty that work really dried up uh, in, a, in a major way. And so I started writing about cycling partially as a way to sort of moonlight, I guess you could say. And as I became more invested in it and more, um, I got a little bit better at it, uh, then it started to become sort of now more split half and half these days, if not a little bit more doing cycling than uh, other, other forms of writing. Uh, because the thing about sports is that they are constantly happening. Uh, whereas things like architecture, for example, or art happen on a much slower timescale. So it actually works quite nicely to do both um, in terms of what's happening uh, and how much you have to write about it. Uh, so it, it worked, it worked out pretty well, I would say, but yeah, since last year, uh, it's been about over a year now, just a year. Yeah. I would say it worked out pretty well. <laughs> you've, <laughs> yeah. you've really come in strong and I, it's good to have you writing more and more about cycling just as someone who likes to consume content. So happy to hear that you want to continue to do that. I, so you were, were you a, like a casual fan before the 2020 Tour de France or what was your kind of journey as a, like a viewer before that? It's an interesting question, actually. Um, so like I started to become aware of cycling when I was in college because it was considered to be sort of a civilized person's sport. If you know what I mean? I went to art school. I went to music school. And so like at, in, the, in music school, like art kids, they watched like two sports, like the FIFA World Cup and the Tour de France. And those were like cool European sports to be into. <laughs> And this just sounds so stupid now, but when you're 19, it makes sense in your brain. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so like that was during the Froome year. So it was kind of uh, not the most exciting time to get into cycling. So it was kind of in the periphery. Uh, it wasn't until I moved to Chicago uh, in 2020 um, that I really got into it because there's a couple of things that happened. First of all, like what well, my husband, he's a cyclist. And uh, his parents are cyclists. Like they cycled across America the second they hit retirement. Uh, and his dad has just patented a new type of recumbent bike. Like they're cyclists. Um, and my husband has always been a cyclist. And I finally got like a nice bike for the first time and discovered sort of the joy of cycling myself in a very personal way uh, and became just kind of uh, obsessed with riding a bike. And that sort of naturally lent itself to watching cycling. And so it was funny, like after the 2020 tour, I would go back in semi-legal archives to go, I watched like every grand tour and monument all the way back to like 2011. So what I would do is I would like wake up at like six in the morning or whatever to watch cycling when it was happening. Then I would work during the day, obviously. And then uh, around like six or seven in the evening, I would watch cycling until midnight and go to sleep and start it all over again. So I managed to make it all the way back to 2011 that way. So the last, about the last 10 years of, of professional cycling. 
And then, of course, like other things like historical footage, um, documentaries, you know, Sunday in Hell, read a lot of books, kind of just immersed myself in in the sport in a kind of unhealthy way. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it was kind of a crash course. Uh, it's kind of like when you go, it's, it's kind of like doing language by immersion, I guess you could say. If you uh, get put in a country and you can't speak the language and you have to learn, <laughs> it's kind of like that. Uh, so it's it's kind of an odd way to become uh, acquainted with professional cycling, but I feel pretty caught up now, uh, all things considered. Obviously, like I don't have like the expertise of someone who's been watching since like the age of four or whatever, but uh, I'm like definitely familiar with all of the characters and the scandals and whatnot. So, and being American, you know, Lance Armstrong was part of uh, the childhood consciousness. Though I'm like a little young for the height of Lance Armstrong I don't for example like the Omerita stuff I don't remember that at all I remember Lance Armstrong as like being a guy who was on the Discovery Channel every once in a while like my husband really was was he's he's a few years older than me he's like seven years older than me and he remembers Lance Armstrong and like those years very viscerally he still rides a trek it's like you know it's it's a weird loyalty we have but long after Lance has stopped riding trek your husband's still riding it Oh yeah. He's like, he's like only track. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, I'm like, but I'm kind of the same way. I'm like only Bianchi. <laughs> That's it's such an interesting way to consume it. Uh, like your this immersion into the past. It's good. It's almost better in some ways because you notice trends You and you like skip the narratives that a lot of times actually aren't very useful or correct. Yeah. Um, it's also funny that you're like, you're like an amber frozen you're like frozen in time like and you haven't even got to the like you don't even know about the armstrong years yet wait till you get to that yeah i know about um, all those from like reading books and like there are a lot there's lots of archival material from those years like there's like a long video series on the 1999 tour de france for example uh that i watched and there's a lot of uh footage from from that era because it's like it's ironic honestly because it was a very sordid era of cycling and yet so many people are still so nostalgic for it to the point like where we're like re um, redeeming people like Jan Ulrich and stuff, which I, I am a little bit uncomfortable about, but we can talk about that later. Uh, so it's, it's really fascinating to me. There is a, an immense wealth of documentary and, and uh, race footage from that era. So it actually hasn't been that hard to catch up on. They're, they're, they're like once you get a little bit past that though like in the late 80s that gets a lot harder to find um and so like that's kind of like a, a blind spot and also like the mid 2000s are kind of a blind spot too because a lot of interest dropped off in cycling after armstrong retired so there's not a lot of material from like say like 2005 through i don't know like 2010 before like regular streaming became a thing so that's kind of like a media black hole where like the internet was around, but like cycling wasn't really being streamed uh, in the way that it is now. So there's not a lot of archival footage. It's really frustrating. Anyways, just a little tangent there. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's funny you say that. I have like, uh, like in my basement, like a private collection of, of like DVDs from, because I actually think the racing was quite bad in the Armstrong era. Yeah. After he retired, it got pretty good. But it's what you're saying. There was really no streaming. There used to be this company called World Cycling Productions. You could just like, you know, it was like order DVDs through the mail. And so I have like every race from like 05 to basically like the end of the Contador era in 2011. Wow. Like that's like the only way you can watch it because it's not, it like doesn't exist anywhere. It's kind of funny. I, I, 
I mean, some of there must be the footage must be out there on a server somewhere that like someone could monetize. It's odd that that kind of is a black hole, like what you're saying. I mean, it's still like really frustrating for me as a writer that like most of the uh, footage that I've consumed is quasi legal, I would say. Uh, Like, but I think that like it would be really great if there was if these resources were made available by, I don't know, race organizers or by like uh, companies like GCN or whatever to like, for example, like libraries or a sports archive or something so that researchers and journalists can go back and, and watch them in like a academic and legal way. Uh, instead of like having to like hope that something's on YouTube. Uh, this is a big topic of conversation in my family. Um, so how do you, how do you pronounce Primus Roglic and Tadej Pogacar? Like, what's the correct way to say their names? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Primus Roglic, obviously. And then uh, Tadej Pogacar. Okay. Yeah. And so how did you, like, you're kind of like, I don't know if this was att- intentional. I'd love to hear the story of how this happened. Like, you're kind of like the Slovenian whisperer. <laughs> I guess specifically the Roglic whisperer. Like, how did this happen? Uh, How did this come about? That's so funny. That's a Richard Moore at the Cycling Podcast called me the Roglitch Whisperer, and it was like all over after that. (laughs) That's probably what incepted it in my head. Yeah. um, So it's kind of a a funny story. Uh, Well, obviously, like a lot of this is in the profile I wrote of Roglitch for bicycling. Uh, I was obviously like, I really liked Roglitch, like as a fan. Uh, and I still do actually, uh, even just as a fan of the sport, uh, it's more, a little more complicated since I've like worked with Roglic like quite a bit at this point, but, um, I still like, for example, like when I'm on my bike and I'm absolutely sucking, like I still think about Roglic at the, the 2020 Vuelta, like on the precipice of losing and just managing to like, hang on. Uh, I still think about that. Like when I'm on my bike, like trying to go up like the tiniest hill in Chicago, <laughs> Uh, just like a really fascinating character uh and really kind of inspiring because his story is really one of just like absolute valley and trough like failure and redemption uh that it's just kind of mind-boggling like for example like when he lost the tour and then won Liège two weeks later just absolutely nuts like if i suffered a defeat that humiliating in the tour de france to like this kid who's like almost 10 years younger than me from my same country. I would like never show my face in public ever again. But, <laughs> but, but I, I'm not Roglic, obviously. And so he just, the, the mental fortitude he has to be able to just be like, okay, uh, I'm going to win the Fest on just crazy to me. So obviously uh, he was kind of, I think, I think for everyone who tries to get into a sport, for example, it's the easiest way to do it is to kind of latch on to one person or like one team and just kind of follow that one team because the rest of it is really daunting. Like, so for example, right now I'm trying to get into basketball. So I'm like into the Chicago bulls because I'm in Chicago. And uh, so it's like easy for me to see basketball through the lens of the Chicago bulls. than it is to like watch the sum total of basketball games that are on. And so when I started writing about cycling, it's very similar with Roglic and Yumbo Visma. I still have like full Yumbo Visma kit, uh, actually, uh, <laughs> and uh, including a very warm thermal jacket. Um, and so for me, like 
when I got to talk to Roglic, it was really uh, surreal because he was really my hero at the time. And I like not a person who has heroes or like if I do have heroes, my heroes are dead. Uh, like Rachel Carson is one of my heroes. She's like extremely dead. Uh, but like Roglic was one of my only living heroes. And so going, it was really a big transition from going from being a fan to, to trying to write about cycling it was very, um, I would say it was kind of an awkward and painful transition. Uh, and so when I talked to Roglic the first time, it's very like, this is in the, all the in the profile. He was like kind of a dick because I mean, in his defense though, uh, I don't know if this was put in the profile, but when I called him that day uh, and he was on, uh, he was on Tenerife uh, and he had just done like 200 kilometers on his time trial bike and is in his fourth hour or third hour of media interviews. He was really miserable. And if I were Roglic, I would just be like, no, I don't want to do this interview. <laughs> Like some American girl who just like asks like really overwrought and awkward questions. Like, no way. I don't want to do that. And so it was a really bad phone call. Actually, I was really pissed when it was over. I was really mad at myself because I really was scared by it. It's really intimidating uh, talking to, to Brockledge. Uh, as someone who had never interviewed someone that famous before. I'd interviewed like architects and artists, but no one as like beloved and famous as uh, Primus Roglic. And so it was, uh, <laughs> I didn't like start out as the Roglic or the Slovenian whisperer is what I'm trying to say. I, in fact, I started out as a very awkward woman <laughs> who, and as I kept working in cycling, my interviewing skills got a lot better. Um, I started to understand really crucially that the purpose of interviews is to gather information and not to be like the smartest and most poetic person in the room. Uh, which is a very important thing to, to realize because like, honestly, like the best questions to ask, especially athletes are really simple questions. And like your the point of it is to take what they say and then make a kind of trail out of that and like use listening and observation skills rather than come up with like the best questions beforehand, because you never know how someone is going to answer your questions. Like I, I really thought, for example, like Bradlow should be sentimental about like his victories or whatever, but he's not really. I mean, and actually none of them are, um, very few cyclists are sentimental about victories. Um, because in order to have the mental fortitude to be cyclists, they have to move on very quickly, which means like not dwelling on the past, which means not dwelling on the victories or not dwelling on the failures. It comes, it's, it's not one or the other. Uh, and so I kind of realized this when I did my second interview with Roglic. And so I was really on a fact-finding mission because I had to write this profile. And there was just stuff about Roglic I didn't know. Like, I knew he went to college, for example. And I was like, no one talks about how I went to college. It's like, you went to college. Like, what did your parents do? Yeah. You know, like. I didn't know that until I read that piece. I was actually kind of blown away by that. Yeah. I had never <laughs> heard it before. It's crazy. Yeah. He's actually, he's. He told me all kinds of actually really great stories that didn't end up in that piece. For example, like he used to, some of his jobs, I know it, the piece opens with him being a, a janitor in a mall, cleaning, he was cleaning escalators in a mall. Uh, it was very cute actually, because he didn't know the word for escalators in English. So he was like, just trying to explain escalators to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, he was cleaning escalators in a mall. He's also like a door-to-door -door salesman, which is like deeply funny to imagine because he's kind of, he's not an awkward guy, but he's, He's not like a smooth talker either. <laughs> um, no, yeah, I was like finding amusement, picturing him coming and trying to sell me like um, 
Miss Myers cleaning product or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, it's a hard, it's hard to imagine it. Yeah. And, and the truth is he was kind of a, a screw up Roglic. Like he's like a failed ski jumper. He's about to be a college dropout. He is like, just like doing crappy ob jobs. Like, and that's like a very different picture than like he was one elite athlete and would then became another elite athlete. Uh, and like people don't realize, for example, that he didn't really get paid for ski jumping. It wasn't like he was like a big star in ski jumping. He was like really kind of what like a college athlete is to us uh, over here. Yeah. Uh, and so it's really interesting that he, um, yeah, he didn't, he, it wasn't like he had like a very huge athletic career and was like famous or whatever. He was just like a gifted kid who kind of burned out at like 21, which is really normal. It happened to me. I was, a, I was a violinist and I guess what I burned out at 21 uh and it's not uncommon and so i had some sympathy with roglic there obviously uh and yeah so it's interesting uh that interview went really well he was really funny uh in that interview he was in a really good mood he was in spain uh he was really sunburned he was doing training camp but he was like on a good day or whatever and he was watching that we were both watching the giro in the background and he was explaining the giro to me which was like very cool and yeah, we just ended up getting along that day. I don't know, uh, really, but really, I, I think it's because I was asking questions that no one really asked him. Uh, and was, it was obvious also that I, I liked him, for example. So like he knew, he saw that I have like, I've assigned both a Jersey by him, like hanging up in the back of my office. And so he was like, Whoa, that's the first thing he said. He was like, well, that's a nice Jersey. And I was like, okay, this is going to go really well now. Cause like you can see who I am and that like, obviously like, I'm not here to like screw you over. Uh, and so, yeah, it, 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 I was curious about that. <laughs> did you buy that Jersey or how did you get a hold of that? Uh, I got it at auction. I don't actually, I have quite okay. a few signed stuff, but as journalists, we can't ask cyclists to sign things. It's just kind of considered uh, rude. And so I have some that I, I bought at auctions. Uh, I have one, I have Tom Dumoulin pink 2017 Giro Jersey, Roglic Vuelta 2019 and Pagacha tour 2020. Um, and then I kind of like have no desire further to collect any more jerseys. Uh, those were just the three that I wanted. Um, and so, yeah, that's, I, I, uh, I, I, that's what I did with the money I made from, uh, the, some of those I bought with the money I made from the raw fees, which also helped pay for me to go to the Tour de France, uh, which was helpful. Um, and so I guess I should talk more about the other Slovenians, uh, I think I was thinking about this the other night, actually. It's like, why do I get along with Slovenians? Uh, I actually have like quite a few Slovenian friends at this point. I, I, I went over there. Uh, I spent like six hours at Matej Mohoric's house. Uh, Whoa, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. I could talk a little bit more about that later. Um, went to, uh, yeah, so it just, I think that like the key is, to be honest, not to give away like my trade secrets or whatever, is that like for me like Slovenia is like a place like a nice place where my friends live and it's I'm like everyone has like a very a lot of people still have a really exoticized view of Slovenia left over from the Cold War uh or like just like general like I mean for example like general uh western versus eastern Europe kind of vibes if you know what I mean and for me uh I just kind of don't feel that way about it so, like, when I talk about Slovenia, like, I'm not like, oh, Slovenia, like, you guys were Yugoslavia once. <laughs> you know what I mean? uh, and so, 
I think that that's a really big part of it is that I don't think it's weird that like Slovenians are good at things. Uh, and also I don't think Slovenia is like a weird place. Uh, and also I like Slovenia a lot as a place. And I have, I like my Slovenian friends and uh, including people who help me out, like give me tips of like connections and like junior racing over there. And uh, it just, it just ended up like once that Roglic piece went, uh, went up, like, and I had, I had written about Roglic a few times before that too, actually quite a few times. Uh, then it became, um, Oh, like I became like weirdly Slovenian famous to put it that way. Like I have like a Slovenian fan base for, for my, yeah, for yeah. my writing, which, which also helps. Uh, and so, uh, and then, yeah, so I, I'm the, the only Slovenian I don't have like a particularly like close relationship to is Pogaccia because he's really impossible to get to. He's really, they, like, you couldn't get to him during the tour. I wrote about that in my profile. I did the winner's profile of him, uh, for pro cycling when I was at the tour. So I basically just followed him around and did observation, but I did ask him quite a few questions in press conferences and every, that was just another part of the rumor of me being the Slovenian whisperer is because I would just ask today questions that would just make him like laugh or like become normal. And everyone's like, how does she do it? <laughs> it's so funny. It's just like, all I just asked was like things like I, the thing is, is I just don't pretend to be the smartest person in the room. Cause like, for example, there was a stage where he was sprinting and wow, was sprinting. And I was like, today, why are you, why did you sprint? You had like no reason to sprint. And it's like, can you explain like why you did that? And he was like, oh, I was nice. <laughs> just a nice kick of the <laughs> legs. Uh, it's nice to do a little sprint. <laughs> and everyone's like, whoa, he's nice. <laughs> I couldn't, like, I've been to Slovenia before. I was actually super excited. Right when I get in the cab, I asked the cab driver, do you know who Primoz Roglic is? Guy has no idea who he is. <laughs> I'm very disappointed. Um, but uh, I was I was having a hard time. It was also before, this was before Pogacar won the tour. It's like what the dynamic is in the country with fans and the roglic Pogacar rivalry, or I guess just, I mean, not rivalry, but kind of just existence of those, <laughs> of those two. And I get, you know, I just kind of get the feeling that Roglic is like super popular, setting aside this cab driver and that Pogacar, I mean, I think it's at this point, it kind of breaks my heart, but he's better. <laughs> um, I think it's like not even close, but he just for whatever reason has not popped as much in the Slovenian imagination as Roglic. Do, do you get that feeling as well? It's kind of complicated. I would say, I think for some, it, to some extent, like the divide among fans is a little bit over-exaggerated. Uh, I would say that like, yeah, a lot of people fall into camps. Um, but I would also say that it's not like a bitter feud or anything like that. Um, I would say that, uh, a lot of people love Roglic for the same reason that I love Roglic, which is that he's like kind of a screw up who then does really well. And then, you know, is again, his like his insane powers of self-redemption are incredible. And also he's like kind of, uh, an, uh, I called him in a piece once like an extraordinary everyman. He's like from like a working class background in coal country. Like, I mean, he's very much like that kind of figure. And Pagacha is like a really gifted kid. Let's just put it that way. Uh, and, and also like there's a misconception among like a lot of fans, not in Slovenia who like, they of course know who he is, but like that, like Pagacha is like some, for some reason, like some rich kid or something, but he's, he's really not. He's actually like astonishingly normal. 
Uh, even as a guy, he's extremely normal. Uh, he really is just like a kid, to be quite honest with you. He's a kid who likes to ride his bike. That is not as exciting a story as like the ex-ski jumper who like lost the tour, then won Liège, then won the Vuelta. You know what I mean? It's just... Yeah. That's really, I think, where, where it comes from. Uh, but I think... I don't think it's that... Ana- There's not a lot of animosity. Uh, on the internet, yes, of course. Um, but I think it really comes down to whether you like Pagacha rather than like... I think everyone kind of likes Roglic, but there are other people who don't like Roglic. They think he's kind of a dick or like... Uh, they don't like that he like spams his Instagram stories with his store or whatever, but I don't really care about that personally because these guys have about 10 years to make all of the money they're going to make in life before their bodies are destroyed. So let them like sell merch on Instagram does not bother me. Uh, and yeah, I think Pagacha, there's a, like a very common view actually though, that Pagacha stole the tour from Roglic. Actually, it's just something Mahorich was talking about when I was at his house. Um, and Mahorich is very much kind of on the, the he's low-key, he's on the side of Pagacha on this one. Uh, and he said that there's like a very common perception that everyone liked today when he was second. It was like, oh, the two best sportsmen in cycling. They're both from Slovenia. Very exciting. Uh, and then they liked today when he was second. And then when he, when he, buried himself in that time trial and came out on top. Then it was like, he stole the tour from Roglic is like a common view. Um, and, and Morris said that like, don't think that's true. Obviously like he's trying to win the stage. He was just like thinking about like all the guys behind him who could possibly also win that stage, which included like Tom Dumoulin uh, and just really just kind of buried himself. And I don't think he knew he was going to win the tour de France. Uh, I also believe that I really don't think he knew he was going to win the Tour de France when he did that time trial. Um, and so you can't really put the motive of stealing the Tour de France on that kid's shoulders. Uh, I don't think that's how he thought about it. I think he was going for a stage win and it just ended up being a big deal. And th- I think always and very often actually about the images from when Pogaccia, uh crossed the line. I wrote an essay about this recycling news. There's like an image of him and his face is just one of like kind of pain and astonishment. And it's like a very visceral image actually of him when he realizes what he's done. And not only just like the, the, the insurmountable achievement of winning the Tour de France as, as like a 21 year old, but also what he's done to Roglic, who is his friend and his mentor. He's really torn up about it for a long time. Uh, like he was giving interviews to Lakeep, for example, saying that, you know, I watched Roglic on television for five years and like was cheering for him. And this was his greatest dream. And it was me who has taken it from him. Like just really kind of gut wrenching stuff. And so it's, it's really, it was really a strange relationship between the two of them. That was sort of like Roglic was kind of like this older mentor. Like there's nine years between them. He joked once, like, he's like, it's like, are you guys friends? He's like, he's like, I don't even think today can buy cigarettes is what he said. <laughs> Yeah, I, I always think it's funny when it's like, oh, they're buddies. It's like the I think people forget, like if you're 31, 32, however old Roglic is, like you do not want to hang out with a 21 year old. Like, yeah, I think that they were a fun. Time. Yeah, exactly. It's really not that great. Uh, and also like he they were kind of weird kind of like mentor protege relationship for a while, especially at the 2019 Vuelta where Roglic let Pagacha win a stage. Those days are over. 
Uh, and even like at the 2020 tour, there's like footage of them from like the Code Yellow documentary, for example, where they're sitting on the trainers and Roglic is telling him like how to win on Grand Colombier. Like, <laughs> just absolutely nuts. I mean, uh, and th they were really close, uh, I would say. Not, but not in the way that friends are close, if that makes sense. I don't. Yeah, yeah. I don't think yeah. that they're that they were friends. I think that they were what they were compatriots, and they had a, a weird kind of like mentor protege thing going on that had elements of friendship in this. I would say they were friendly, and then they remained friendly uh, up until like around Italy, a vast country, and then I think things just disintegrated. It became very obvious that not that they're enemies, but like they don't talk to each other like anymore. Uh, they're not like high-fiving each other anymore. They're not like riding in the Peloton, having a chat anymore. Those days are over. Like the, the mission of winning the Tour de France became kind of the principal thing. And it, is it sad that that happened? Of course it's sad. It's especially sad for me who really loves both of them. Uh, but, uh, and it's like, I, I don't know. Sometimes people ask me like if I like one more than the other. And the answer is at this point in my career, like, of course, when I was, you know, still a fan, I would say, yes, I like Roglic more. Now, after falling today around the tour and like falling Roglic around the Vuelta, I'd say like, I, I'm not neutral because the, the storylines always sway one way or the other. But I would say that like, they're just different. Uh, they're so unbelievably different as people, as, as cyclists, like their attitudes towards cycling are different. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I comparing them only in the skill and the talent that they have and the sheer feats that they're able to accomplish. Uh, like, yes, you can compare them, but as people, they, they couldn't be more different. Um, uh, and how do you think that works together? Like when, when they're at the Olympics, I was pretty curious about this. Like, I mean, they must be, it must be cordial enough that they can race together. But do you think like the Olympics is like the first time they're talking all year? Oh, no. I think that like the Olympics were, um, the Olympics this year were a little bit difficult because you have to remember all these guys like, well, Roglic, like, of course, abandoned the Tour de France because that crash, I was there actually when he rolled in from that crash on stage three. And I had to go in the car and cry because it was like really one of the most brutal things I'd ever seen in my life just as a human being. <laughs> Uh, it was, it was horrible. Uh, he was just bleeding everywhere and his face, he looked like he had just come back from war and there's all these guys rolling up. Like, I think they had to take, uh, Jack Haig away in an ambulance. Like it was grim. Yeah. It was a really grim day. And I, uh, I almost wanted to go home to be quite honest with you. I was really shaken up by it because I wasn't used to seeing violence like in person, to be honest. Um, and so like to see men roll in, like just bleeding and like, like looking like just absolutely traumatized was really difficult, uh, just as a, as a human being for me, uh, as a, someone who with like great deal of empathy for suffering. Uh, and so when Roglic, I remember Roglic at the tour those days after, um, it was so sad too for me because I just interviewed him for the first time in person that morning at the beginning of stage three. And he gave me a nice interview for the mix zone for Roglic. I mean, uh, including some bits about how he thought Jonas could win the Tour de France, which became very useful to me later on. Um, yeah. And yeah, he, he's, he's great. Like, and 
was very he was very nice he's like he said it was like good to see me he was very surprised to see me because uh, I told him at the end of my um, my interview with him that like I wanted to be a cycling journalist and I wanted to quit my job to do it and he was like oh it's like quitting ski jumping <laughs> he's like you're quitting ski jumping uh, and yeah so when he saw me actually at the tour like during the Grand Depart he was like yo <laughs> and even at the Vuelta <laughs> he was surprised to see me and so it like we have this weird he always like says hi to me now it's actually quite nice i mean he, he busts my balls during interviews at this point just like every other cycling journalist but he always makes a point to say hi anyways like back away from like roglich like this is super unusual by the way like un very unusual for someone as good as him to be that cordial like this was before your time but like bradley wiggins was like actively a dick to anyone he would see that was like regularly covering him and it's like that was kind of like the tone for a lot of top writers to people that were writing about him. It's like Roglic is like, this is super unusual, like that he would even recognize you and be like, oh, you quit your job and now you're covering cycling. That's like speaks a lot to his character. Yeah, I think also like, I don't know, he had like a little bit of sympathy for me because it was like very obvious that I was like new at what I was doing. And uh, he's a nice guy, Roglic. I mean, he's kind of like thorny sometimes. Uh, actually, Mahorik said that this is all an act. He actually like secretly loves talking to the press, <laughs> which I think is hysterical. <laughs> uh, he, this is actually just a big show of him like being cranky or whatever, being like, "Oh yeah, we'll see how it goes." Oh yeah, <laughs> and uh, which I actually <laughs> I liked him before. You've ruined Roglic for me. I liked him like in the early days. I was into Roglic before everybody else. Very cool. But when he was like a. When, you know, when he was like, he would like go to these small races and win like literally every stage. And you're like, what the heck is happening? Like this guy <laughs> is a machine. And he would say stuff in the interviews. Like he'd literally say like the race is the, the race was the race. And I'm like, this is performance art. Like he's, <laughs> he's elevating interviews to a level we've never seen before. So like good. it almost seemed like he was in on the joke and he's like, I resent being here. Like I raced, you can write about how I raced and like what are you going to glean from this interview? This whole exercise is stupid. And like, I just I was like, this guy's amazing. He's I know. I really kind of like respect him for it. Like, honestly, because it's so funny because in private, like one-on-one, -on -one, he's always great. Actually, every, aside from that first interview, every time I've talked to Roglic one-on-one is like, or like, even like in the mix zone when no one else is around, which happens in the Vuelta, surprisingly, uh, he's great. Uh, like when I was at the Vuelta, for example, like I would, add, I was kind of not on the Roglic beat at the Vuelta because I was working with Gino Mater the whole time. Um, and also I just told my editor, like, I didn't want to like write about Roglic for the 50th time. <laughs> it's like, I became at a certain point, like the guy who writes about Roglic and I kind of wanted to do something else. So I was like, I'm just going to go on my own dime and, uh, see what happens and kind of see what I want to do. And it turns out I just wanted to follow like barring guys around. <laughs> uh and uh but like i was working with Roglic at the vuelta because i was doing some like side work for cycling news covering like the uh personnel change in the slovenia national uh team and i asked it was so funny like i was asking like all the other slovenian guys like who all know me by now like what they thought about it. and they're like oh it's nice that andre happened who's also a ds at uae team emirates is like leaving um to go you know work with today or like be with his family they're like good for andre work-life balance whatever and i get to rob legend he's like it's shit <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny 
he's just like, it's shit. And then he was like, I know who it's going to be, but I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about your, your stint with Bahrain. Um, for first of all, I would love, we'll get to Matej Motorich. I'd love to hear how his house is. I need to know that. Uh, yeah. Okay. But also, um, Bahrain, such an interesting team. Uh, I mean, I was like big, when they hired Rod Ellingworth, I was like, this team's going to be amazing. They were, it was the opposite. Like, they were terrible. <laughs> Rod Ellingworth. He leaves, and no, they're, good. they're great this year. They got a lot of shit. You know, I, in the English language media, it's like, I don't know, just like, oh, they're doping because I say they're doping. Even though they took hair follicle tests of the tour, and they only came back with basically a laxative in it. Which no, it, was a, it, that, it, it was a muscle relaxant. Uh, mu- yeah. Anyways, go on. And it's that should be good news. You're like, that's a, you know, that's like a deep, deep analysis. It's really hard to fake a hair follicle test. And if that's all the returning, I just was really disappointed in the coverage of that. Like that should have been like a positive spin for the team and and kind of people maybe should have taken back a lot of what they said about him. Um, But what was your feeling inside the team? Like, what's the feeling about Rod Ellingworth? Um, And what's your theory on why they got so much better? pretty much with the same personnel after he left? Uh, so this is a really good question, actually. Um, I did, so for example, when I was, so my work with Bahrain started when I was profiling Mahorich at the tour. Uh, and so I followed Mahorich around starting after Tina when I had a really long interview with him. He turned a 15-minute phone call into an hour. It's very much him. I was at his house for six hours. <laughs> uh, he's that guy. Uh, and, uh, and does he, he lives in Slovenia still? Uh, he lives partially in Monaco and partially in Slovenia. Um, he has like a house where his girlfriend and his daughter live, which like before I asked him about what he was reading, no one knew that he had a kid. Um, he's very, I've, I've never heard this before. Yeah. He's <laughs> yeah. very private. Um, really private guy. Uh, anyways, like not to out that he has a kid or whatever, uh, and a girlfriend, which he met his girlfriend when he was 14. Actually, they've been together since like middle school. <laughs> uh, she's a dentist. Yeah. She's got her whole own life. She doesn't like go to the races or anything. She's just like, cause it's just like for her, it's just like, that's just Mate from school. Like it's not, you know, she's like the anti-wag. Like, uh, <laughs> so funny. Anyways, like, uh, so that's when my work started with Bahrain. And so I was there when that raid happened, actually like really crazy. I, uh, after my, uh, interview with Mate, uh, I, we had like a, a correspondence on Instagram. Like we were, we were just texting basically. Uh, and he was like, it's so weird. Like Bahrain guys, like, I don't, they're just like fine with the press. I don't understand. Anyways, they, we were just like texting and I was just like, LOL. Like, this is like when he was, the bus was on the way to Poe, actually. I was like, LOL, like your bus just passed. And he's like, yeah, it sucks. We're not going to get in until like 10 PM. I like, I don't even know when we're going to eat dinner. I hate it. Like, and it's like, <laughs> so I was just like, I saw this, I was reading over these like messages, like that morning going uh when i got the, the text <laughs> from the press officer that they had been raided because we were in the car i was still with like i was in the car i think still with richard and francois um no i was in the car with uh pete cossins actually uh and uh johnny long uh i think maybe it was just pete at that point but i don't remember and uh they got busted uh <laughs> it, was, it was crazy so like there's a couple things you have to remember i'm, I'm going to talk about this and then i'm going to talk about rod 
Um, uh, there's a couple things you have to remember uh, about about this event that happened, which was that it, it, it. So when I asked Mahorich about it when I was at his house, he had a really funny story. Actually, I was like, "Did you?" I asked him if I if he thought anything was going to happen, like this was ever going to happen to him, and like he said that like they were joking about it on the bus, and like Sonny Caprelli apparently said like, "Oh, it's the Domatel from Contador." <laughs> <laughs> and then he and Mahorich is like everyone was like, oh yeah, fuck off, Sonny. <laughs> and then uh yeah, they got uh obviously they were joking that like of course like if anyone was going to get busted or raided, it was gonna be them. Uh <laughs> which is like a deeply funny thing to say, but you can kind of see where they're coming from, to be honest, because they can't go after UAE. Like Astana's not worth anything this year. You know what I mean? Like, it just becomes obvious that, like, they're going to go, like, if you're going to do, like, a raid on, like, a non-MPCC team, it makes sense to do a raid on Bahrain. It just does, from, like, the perspective of, like, uh, and it's so funny because, like, Mahorich maintains to this day that it was just, like, a political thing. The French are salty about not winning the tour. They're just going to keep doing this until they win the tour. <laughs> Which is, like, honestly not unfair to say. No, I totally agree with i think he's 100 right uh, and it's it's super damaging to everyone involved because everyone remembers the raid no one remembers that they never turn up anything yeah so it's kind of an effective strategy on the french's part i mean they should actually just get better at cycling yeah that would probably help yeah but they're so in, in absence of that just keep raiding people <laughs> he was so mad uh mate was so mad um like everyone else kind of everyone else on the team like uh Cobrelli and uh you know Tunes and Wout Poles they were all you know because they were just kind of like chilling uh about it I mean Wout Poles was going for the King of the Mountains jersey that day still uh on Luzard Den, and that was a long campaign by Bahrain to secure that jersey which they lost because today just decided to be today and Decided to just like he wasn't even trying to win it. Yeah, he's just like annihilating <laughs> everyone, uh, like climbing in the saddle, whatever. Uh, today is today, and uh, I remember said that at the interview that day, uh, that like you're just hoping that like today wasn't gonna win, <laughs> which is so funny. Uh, and he, but, but Morris was so mad. Uh, he was really mad about it. Everyone else was just like, yeah, whatever. But he was pissed. And he he was so pissed that he went in the breakaway. And he said that he went into the breakaway that because he was pissed. And um, he did the same thing, like, at stage 19. And, of course, he, like, won from the breakaway. I was on the motorbike that day, actually, on the back of the motorbike. And we followed the breakaway most of the day on the back of the motorbike because I knew, like, Mate told me a couple of days before that he was going to go in the breakaway. And I knew that I was going to go on the motorbike. So I was like, first of all, I knew he was going to win that stage. If he went in a late stage breakaway, stage 19 of the tour, it was like probably going to be a television breakaway, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and so I was like, yeah, I want to absolutely go on the motorbike and absolutely follow the breakaway. I do not want to follow the Peloton. Uh, and he won. And he, of course, did the zip lift gesture, which deeply funny in retrospect i kind of think badass but at the time it was really horrifying uh because everyone's like oh my god they are all doping like i can't believe like there was like a a, a piece in cycling tips by like people who weren't even there being like is before a cheater or is he just stupid and the answer is he's neither 
but like he absolutely had no idea about like the Lance Armstrong thing. First of all, I didn't even really know about it because despite like my, you know, penchant for cycling history, that was just before my time. And Mahoric and I are the same age. Uh, and it's and one of the things I actually have like great complaints about is that um, there, we still talk about the EPO era and like these kids were born when that era was going on. Like, I'm sorry, today Pagacha was born in 1998. You know what I mean? Yeah, this is like a common thing. I think I wrote about this the day that he did this. It's like a common problem in sports where like sports writers think the athletes care or are as steeped in the history as them. And it's like, they're not. Like, they do not care about... What, what was that? Like, stage 17 of the 2004 Tour de France? Like, Matty Motorich didn't watch that stage, probably. Like, yeah. he's not aware of this. He has better things to do. Like, we don't. He does. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. It's this odd disconnect with writer and athlete, where it's like, we think they're... Like, no, he's not... He was not going back the night of the raid and re-watching old Lance Armstrong no, stages. he was absolutely not doing coming that. Coming up with some gesture. Yeah, he... Matei's a little bit impulsive, I think, as a guy. And sometimes he, like, says stuff he shouldn't say or, you know, he's just kind of... He's a big talker. He likes to talk. And, you know, people who like to talk, they sometimes talk too much. And I remember, like... But he told, like, the story... Uh, he told us... Uh, I was there in the mix zone and actually I was originally going to ask him about the raid privately uh, because I, at that point I had that privilege of access. Uh, but my colleague at cycling league, was there. So we asked him about it publicly and then he was just like totally fine talking about it, uh, which was actually quite refreshing, but he was really mad. Um, he was so angry. Uh, and that's the thing about cycling is that you're not allowed to be angry like ever uh, because like anger is automatically seen as a pretense to guilt. Um, like people remember how angry Lance Armstrong was all the time. Uh, you know, you can't. Yeah, which at the time was probably the right move because wouldn't you be angry if you were innocent? But now Lance has set Lance kind of ruined the angry response, so you yeah. can't be angry. And Bahrain, like, okay, uh, I've spent like I would say most of my year as a correspondent in cycling working with Bahrain. Like, for example, like I profiled Mahorich at the tour. I followed Gino Mater around every single stage of the Vuelta and Jack too, but like not as much. Um, and I did like two like hour long inter like rest day interviews with Gino at the Vuelta. Like, and Gino and I like also maintain like an irregular correspondence. Um, and, you know, and I, I like after the Vuelta was over, um, I, well, I went to worlds, but that's not important. Um, I was doing, um, the end of the, the, so Bahrain was the pro cycling magazine team of the year. And so like, I was interviewing, um, this is where we get into Rod Ellingware was interviewing, uh, a lot of people on the team, obviously, like I had leftover material from Gino and Mate from following them around. In fact, I have more material than I could probably ever use, uh, from both of those guys. And was I, I used some of that and then I were, was working with uh, Vladimir Miholovich, who is the technical director of Bahrain. And so it's very interesting to hear um, how writers feel about Rod Ellingworth versus how the TD feels about Rod Ellingworth. Like, um, it's very, very interesting. So Rod Ellingworth came in, basically. And when he came in, Bahrain was like kind of really disorganized. Um, 
like a lot of mid-level world tour teams are. And they had a really great 2018, kind of in the same way that they had a really great 2021, which is basically being scrappy as hell. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so when he, when Rod came, he did a lot. This Mahuric told me this. Mahuric said that when Rod Ellingworth came, um, he took a very, of course, his very patented Marshall Gaines scientific approach to racing. And while that really stifled a lot of guys, actually, to the point, like, that's part of the reason I think Mark Padoon left Bahrain was because, like, he didn't like being told, like, to go on a diet all the time and all this other stuff. And, like, that, I don't think that, I don't think that adjustment was easy for him. That's my intuition. I, like, didn't ask him about why he left Bahrain. In fact, I found out he was leaving, like, very early on because I went to the service course and all his stuff was packed up. So before it was even announced that he was leaving, like, I kind of knew about it anyway. So I got to, uh, so Mahor said that um, Rod came in and he basically systematized everything. And it's true. I went to, when I went to the service course, like everything is meticulously organized. Uh, it is a well-oiled machine. Uh, everything from like the mechanics to all the supplies, to the bike wash, to um, where like the clothing area to everything is like meticulously organized and like ready to go for every race of the year on pallets, like very, I mean, it is, it is a well-oiled machine. And Rod did a lot of that work. He like made sure that like there was like, he basically, Mahora trained it in the way that like Rod eliminated a lot of the chaos of racing. Um, the stuff that like could like stress people out, like making sure that you had enough bottles, like all of like, the supplies, all of the tech, all of the, like all this was became very neat and very orderly. Um, a lot of the training regimens became very consistent, very regimented, very um, uh, scientific. And there a lot of this takes, and more framed it this way that it takes a lot of the, uh, it's very reassuring to have that kind of consistency uh, as a cyclist, because the races of course are un unpredictable. But like, if you can make yeah. everything else routine and predictable, you it improves things quite a bit. This is where we get into Maholovich and what he said. He said that here was the problem, was that he, he gave me this really fantastic quote, which is in the piece that uh, racing should be exciting. It should be like a thriller novel and not like a phone book. And Rod made it like a phone book. The problem with Rod is that he was really trying to go full Ineos on Bahrain. And Bahrain is a team with not that as much resources. Uh, it's, you know, Mikel Landa is not Chris Froome. Yeah. Yeah, we, the, we all remember stage 17 of the 2020 tour. Not great. They, <laughs> they tried to go full Ineos. Didn't work. No. And so, like, they were riding a mountain train or, like, doing um, – those kinds of tactics and they did them for like every single race and with that group of guys it just it just doesn't work i'm sorry like Ineos works by having like basically the best guys possible like they're like overstacked and so like you end up with guys like mikhail kulikowski who is perfectly capable of winning races on his own becoming a domestique he's a world champion yeah he's a world 2014 champion, champion like yeah. becoming a domestique bahrain does not have that i'm sorry like, there's a lot of guys there who, like, are good cyclists, but they are not Mikhail Kulikowski uh, in terms of, like, uh, Palmares or whatever. And 
also a lot of them are like young. Uh, it's a very interesting mix of like older guys and younger guys, guys who have been there since the team started, like Mahorich, uh, who joins uh, shortly after it started, and Cobrelli, who's always been there. Um, there's actually a lot of connections between Lamprey and like uh, UAE and uh, like Bahrain Victorious is actually like the uh, like Siamese twin of UAE to Emirates. I don't know if you know this, um, but they were yeah, it's I, weird. <laughs> Yeah, because I remember Lamprey turned into UAE, but then Bahrain, it's all fuzzy in my mind. Bahrain seemed to like spring to life from the rib of UAE. It really Team did. Emirates. Yeah, it kind of did. Um, they're also like, people also don't realize about Bahrain is that um, Bahrain is like a Slovenian team. It is like Bahrainian name only. In fact, like the Prince of Bahrain, like truly like CBA about like the guys going to Bahrain. They don't have to go to Bahrain. Like, it's not like the UAE guys have to like go to Dubai all the time. No way. Yeah. No, they like it. They just put the names on the Jersey and they give those guys actually quite a large degree of freedom to be like outspoken and to be, to be like open with the press. I mean, it's, uh, it's like still like a sports washing team, no offense, but it also like that part of it isn't as sinister as it is. in, for example, like Israel startup nation or, or like UAE team Emirates. I feel like it's, it, <laughs> they're kind of like slacking on the Sylvan on the Adams is, is jamming our, our feed right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> Going exactly. in and out. I I'm losing. You. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So Bahrain, like the reason, and so like I like, asking like why Bahrain is so good this year, it's like Bahrain was very adamant. And he said that like Bahrain was always good. It's just that the, and Mohovic said that like the Ineos tactics just like full stop couldn't transfer over to Bahrain. And also like they brought Cav, it was really awkward. Anyways, uh, it was, oh, I forgot about that, that was really tragic. Yeah, uh, and so funny, like, um, so anyways, they, the, once they, once Rod left, they, they, Bahrain kept the systematized part of what he implemented in place. So like all of that consistency, all of that readiness, all of that regimented training was maintained. Uh, and, and that system remains in place. But they went back to their old tactics of being scrappy as hell. And so that combination actually is quite powerful. Um, and I don't think a lot of people realize that. I, I really think that like a lot of people immediately jump to like they're all on EPO or something, which is not true. Um, and to be quite honest with you, like, I don't think that like whatever like Tizanidine or whatever they're doing, I don't think it's unique to them. I think that whatever like guys in the world tour are doing, if they're doing anything, it's like shared amongst all of them. I don't, except for maybe the MPCC teams, but like, you know, all of the big major teams that are not MPCC, I think like they're all using ketones. They're all, you know what I mean? Like it's not, it's yeah. not like Bahrain is like somehow any worse than like quick step, for example. Uh, it's just, or like Astana, you know what I mean? It's not, I don't think that it's, it's fair to say that they are like, they are a very convenient scapegoat for, I think a lot of the things that people are so cr critical in cycling. That's not to say that they're innocent. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. It's not like, I mean, I'm really close to Bahrain guys, but it's not like they're going to tell me like we're all doing EPO or something, but I really do think that most of the improvement, if not all of it can be explained by, the combination of the Rod Ellenworth patented system of consistency mixed with like the Bahrain victorious, like scrappy, uh, just like extremely adaptable way of racing. 
Like that's the thing when I was at the Vuelta, for example, and when I was at the tour, like when I was at the tour, it was the same thing. Like it was the same thing at all three grand tours. Landa crashes out in the Giro Caruso ends up finishing second. Uh, and like, you know, it's not like they wrote a train for Damiano Caruso. <laughs> they just like kind of like latched onto whatever Ineos was doing. And it's, you know, for example, also in the tour, when Jack Haig crashed out, uh, they went on to win like several stages and also the team's classification. It was an extremely successful tour de France. Uh, and, you know, Mohoric won in the way that he always wins, which is mostly from long range breakaways. That's not suspicious. Like a breakaway specialist wins from breakaways. Like, come on. I'm sorry. Like, yeah, and he's been doing that for since he was like 17. Earlier. That's the weird thing to me. He's like, he was a world-class rider is like really, really young. And it's like, well, yeah, that makes total sense. He's a world-class breakaway specialist winning breakaways at the biggest race in the world. Like nothing makes more sense than that. And there's just like a general pervasive attitude at the tour. You have to understand like when the tour was really over on, on Le Grand Bourdon, when Pogaccia took five minutes out of everyone else because he loves to play in the rain, um, which he's always done, by the way, uh, everyone was like, well, shit, the tour is over. <laughs> and so when the barring doping rate <laughs> yeah. happened, everyone was like, hell yes. <laughs> like, there's something to write about. Uh, like, guys who, like, were at the mix zone every day suddenly were, like, sucked into the press room, like, trying to find anything and everything. Bahrain doesn't make it easy. Like, Bahrain and UAE don't make it easy on themselves by having, like, guys like Giannetti and, like, Milan Ergen on the staff of their teams. They don't. That invites controversy. And I'm like always very consistent in saying that like these managers and these staff members are canceled basically, or like they have not earned the trust of cycling after they've been involved in some dodgy stuff. Like Airgen was named an elder last. I mean, uh, I mean, it's, it's just like that part of it is, yeah. Okay. There is reason you cannot be naive about, about cycling and about doping and cycling. You can't be like, everything is clean and no one is ever going to do drugs again. Don't think that's true. I, I absolutely do not believe, however, that like anyone is doing EPO or anything like that. I think that like a lot of this, a lot of the like increases in, in performance in cycling can be traced back to like there's, there's, you know, of course, like semi-legal supplements, like ketones, you know what I mean? Like you can point to stuff like yeah. that, like, but like, then you, that asks the question, is it performance enhancing? This is all becomes very philosophical, very abstracted. Um, and then you've also got, um, but also the technology has improved so significantly in the last 10 years that like a lot of riders, like kind of on the DL think that bikes are too fast, almost like in the way Formula One cars were too fast to the point where, like that's why these crashes get more and more intense is because people are riding at higher and higher speeds because the tech is so much better. Um, like the aerodynamics and the weight and the uh, everything is just so much better than it was 10 years ago. Um, and, you know, these are really valid concerns. Uh, and also the racing styles have gone from being this, the sky mountain train. Pagacha really kind of imploded that, uh, that idea of just run a train every day and win the Tour de France. So I don't think that's ever going to happen again. I think riders will always protect their interests, but I don't think that like we're ever going to see like the Chris Broom era of train of Skytrain come back. Um, what we're seeing, it's funny you mentioned Ellingworth. He's, he went back to Ineos. 
this before this last season, they did the Ellingworth train, like the Sky Train at the tour, and it was like, in my opinion, pretty embarrassing. I they mean, had they kept riding on the for, front, yeah, for for Tade Pogacar. He, he didn't have to do anything. His UAE team, I thought, was vulnerable at times, and they didn't have to do jack shit because <laughs> Enios did it for them. I. I, I totally agree with you. I think it's like an outdated. It's like trying to play from the post in the modern NBA. Like exactly, the game's just moved on. Yeah, exactly. I think it's really interesting um, historically the time that we're in in cycling because I think we're seeing a lot more of the old school way of cycling, very individualistic, very romantic. Like I think Matthew Vanderpool is like one of the most romantic individuals on earth uh, in terms of like what he does on a bike. Uh, that's there's a lot of soul in cycling now uh, that makes it very exciting. Uh, I think that makes it like really beautiful. Um, and I really like guys like Pogaccia. I like, I really like Pogaccia because he, he just is riding as he's racing his bike. He's a bike racer's bike racer. And so it's Roglic. Uh, like when Roglic is, you know, in the wheel of someone with like three kilometers to go on like an uphill sprint, like he's gone, <laughs> you know, he just it takes no mercy. Yeah. It's just, he's this native habitat. And so, like, I really think that Bahrain is a really great example of mixing what we've learned from the past era of cycling with our new, very, um, you know, combative and more individualized way of racing. Uh, and it was, it was phenomenal, too, at the Vuelta. Like, Ineos had an embarrassing Vuelta. I mean, absolutely baffling. Uh, I mean, what happened on stage 20 was, like, Adam Yates kicked off this attack that ended up leaving both him and Burnell like completely behind. I know. I, yeah, it's still, that whole thing is still very confusing to me. I don't understand unless maybe the managing the egos behind the scenes is harder than we're imagining. And that was a manifestation of, you know, no one really wanting to make the hard decision, but yeah, I, I thought that was a huge stain on that team's, aura that they've built up over the past few years because they just rode their own gc leader out of the race yeah i mean and then you see Bahrain how they how they adapted to that it was fantastic yeah so so impressive yeah i yeah i i thought that was one of the more interesting stages of the year just to see bahrain where rod ellingworth came from i thought really schooling rod ellingworth's new team in tactics and on-road dynamic tactics like what you're saying it's not Everything's so dynamic now. Um, and this kind of leads me into my last question. It feels like there's been pretty much since you showed up in cycling, it, it's been like evolving so fast. Like we went from the Stone Age with the Skytrain to the, the individual era of like dynamic racing so fast. Like, how do you think in the two, like the two best GC riders in the world, Roglic and Pogacar, are on UAE and uh, Yumbo, which now are big teams, but at the time they signed, were were kind of struggling middling teams. Yeah. How did the big teams like miss out on this? Like, w- what do you think happened there? Like, why did Ineos not sign Tade Pogacar? Like, how did he end up at UAE? And like, why are they struggling so much to adapt? Uh, that's an interesting question. For Pogacar, ending up at UAE um, made a lot of sense uh, interpersonally because he went with Andre Hopman, who was Slovenian. Um, and who was working, he works at several teams. He worked at Adria. He worked, you know, he was like on the national, a coach for the national team. Um, and so when he went, he went with Pagacha to, to UAE and that was a big, 
Um, you have to understand, like, Roglic is really the outlier of Slovenian cyclists. Roglic and Mezgets are the outliers of Slovenian cyclists because, like, they don't have Slovenian teammates and they don't have Slovenian staff members on either of their teams. Um, uh, the rest of them, all, all of them are either in Bahrain or UAE. Uh, and UAE and Bahrain were both the two teams that did their scouting in Slovenia in the mid-2010s or the, like, yeah, mid-2010s. So there, the Slovenian connection, like, really can't be ignored as to why those, these riders are at these teams. Um, and then as far as, like, the tactics are concerned, um, it's interesting because uh, I also still don't believe that UAE is a fully formed team yet. I still think they're figuring it out. It'll be really interesting to see how they do with, like, Almeida in the mix. Yeah, I yeah, I totally agree. Uh, they are sort of becoming the new Ineos in terms of just like buying up guys. <laughs> uh, but also like... I still think though, I think they're like buying them for good. I hope, crossing my fingers. I thought, I think Ineos bought riders for, with bad intentions of like, we're going to warehouse them and park them on the front and you'll never see them do anything fun ever again. I mean, you have to, yeah, yeah, exactly. UAE has exciting plans for these riders. Yeah, because like, you can't, like they basically struggled in every race that Pagacha wasn't in. And so like getting guys like Almeida, for example, is great because now you can like compete in like kind of either like, like the Giro or like minor stage races yeah. or, you know, whatever. Uh, that makes them like oh, quite a bit more interesting as a team from a narrative perspective. Uh, and, you know, some things like, for example, like Hershey going there, uh, like Hershey and Pogaccio were friends in under 23s. Um, they've been close a really long time. There's, there's probably like an element as to why that Hershey went to that team in particular. Um, and it's, it's interesting, like uh, with Yumbo, yeah, Yumbo was like shit. <laughs> uh back in like 20 when Roglic came on the scene he, they were really just like kind of like the the, the flailing leftovers of the of Rabobank uh like a really they were so bad it was a Dutch national team really it was really a Dutch team it's still like I would say primarily Dutch uh in fact like most of their development writers are Dutch Roglic is really the exception there um and you know it's it's really interesting to see how they've come uh, from they've really kind of built a team around Roglic, but they've also done a really good job of nurturing younger talent, which is really difficult. Um, and they, they don't do it on national lines. Like I feel like Ineos like does it on British lines. Like they pull from British cycling and maybe they pull guys like Egan Bernal or whatever, like in a kind of cynical way and that they think this guy's going to win like six court France's or whatever. But like Yumbo really has like, they have their own development team. Like they pulled like, you know, Mingo Goad, like, he like was always talented, but they've really nurtured his talent over the years and like to put him on the right races to develop into the writer that he's becoming. I mean, there's a lot to be said for that. And I think, I think Yumbo just like as, as a, someone who deals with them as the press, they have a very healthy team environment. I would say, um, I feel like it's a very supportive team environment. I think it's a very professional team environment, which is very key. Like they don't have like messy drama, like quick step. They don't have like a frat boy vibe, like, you know, some of like the other teams. It's like they really are, it really is a professional organization. Some would argue that it's too professionalized, but I would say that given the amount of freedom that they let writers like Sepp Puss have, uh, or George Bennett or Jonas Vingegaard, I would say that I, they, they've really found a balance and they've really found their stride. And that comes from a, a mixture of like having experienced guys who have been cycling professionally since like, 
the early 2010s, like Yasin Emden, for example, uh, guys like Kreuzweig, who like now moved on beyond being GC contenders and are now really entering road captain mentorship roles. Uh, and then, of course, young talent pulled from the development team, big superstars like Van Art and Dumoulin and, well, Van Aert, uh, and uh, Roglic. Uh, it's a really well-rounded team. Um, and it does so without being, I would say, like a super team. Uh, in the same way that Ineos is a, is a super team or UAE is becoming a super team. Like for Yumbo, it's not so much about stockpiling the best riders. It's really more about crafting a team that works for specific things in specific situations and like has a, a plan for longevity, which I think is really important. Uh, and it's a very disciplined plan for longevity. Uh, UAE is kind of chaotic. Uh, it's kind of the most chaotic team, uh, I would say. Um, and tactically speaking, uh, they kind of function as, uh, I feel like Bahrain is the best example of the team where you have like really strong riders and then you are just like scrappy as hell the rest of the time. And UAE kind of hasn't like gotten to that point yet because they're still really kind of building their masses and really, um, becoming more, um, consistent. And, you know, like they kind of struggled a little bit at the tour as a team, I would say, I mean, they got a, a lot of their guys got injured. Uh, at the tour, Micah got like super injured in one of those late stage crashes. Like Hershey dislocated his shoulder on stage one. And I remember interviewing him on stage five and they had to put on his jacket for him. He was in tears. It was the worst interview of my life. I forgot to hit record. Really embarrassing moment in cycling journalism. <laughs> and, but you know, they are still figuring it out. Um, and like, they're not quite sure what to do with guys like Brandon McNulty, for example. Like, did they make him like just a roulette or like, you know, we, they saw him, they, we saw him going for GC and in Zulia, which of course backfired because he's not a climber. I don't know. That was kind of a yeah, harebrained yeah. tactics on their part, but it made for really good racing. Uh, and so we're trying to see them. They really are kind of uh, <laughs> experimenting, I would say, uh, in terms and of. It's good for us that there's so disorganized it is, if they were really organized we'd be in trouble i personally don't think that i think that pagacha because he races in such an individual way and because he's so crafty he's a really smart bike rider um he's he really is he's really a smart bike rider is he impulsive does he go on long range breakaway sometimes does he decide to like spend his energy when he could probably save his energy yeah sure but that's called being a bike racer uh, that's called racing your bike to race your bike and not to just do marginal gains all the time. And I think that is a good thing and I will not criticize him for it. But at the same time, like he, because he operates in this way, he, like his teammates are kind of secondary. They're like, it almost feels like, you know, like in the Eddie Merckx era, like Eddie Merckx would just burn through all of his domestiques and then win. It kind of feels like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But at the it's kind of like these bull, the Bulls teams, they're just different guys. Like you forget this, but you go back to their championship run it's just different people oh, yeah. on every oh, team because yeah. it's just like george just burning through people yeah and pagacha like he um it, it, it's interesting because but at the tour he was very defensive of his team because journalists would like call his team weak which i don't think necessarily was fair i don't think that they were as organized or as powerful to like contest in the way that like super teams have con contested in the past and also like half of them were injured <laughs> like really injured. They had some bizarre crashes, like Brandon McNulty crashed in the time trial. I mean, Micah crashed. And like, well, do you remember <laughs> he just rode off the road? Yeah, it was really bizarre, that like, crash. Uh, 
That's a very American. You actually talk a lot about it in your in your Roglic profile how he you know was like lucky to run into these mentors who would like teach him how to do stuff like pee off the bike, put clothes on and off. They don't teach you that in the U.S. No. Like, actually, personally, I don't know any development rider who's ever learned anything like that actively. So we're Americans are very bad at like bike handling, handling themselves in a group and like. That was a very classic American mistake. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> oh, I'm strong. I've been doing like my watts per kilo measurements since <laughs> I was eight, but I forget to stay on the road sometimes. Yeah. And he, Pogaccio was very defensive of his teammates uh, and of his team. Like he insisted day after day, like, I don't understand like why like, people say that we're a weak team. Like, I think we're a really strong team. Because when Micah crashed, he was like openly very concerned in the press conference about whether Micah would be okay. Uh, and people were asking him like, does this affect like your plans for the Pyrenees or whatever, uh, like Luz Ardigan or, uh, you know, what have you. And, and he was like, I just want to make sure that Raphael's okay. Like, I don't ask me about this. Um, you know, that's really the kind of guy Pagacha is actually. I don't think people realize it because he's like kind of shy and awkward in press conferences, but he's, he is like really a consummate teammate. Um, and he very much like loves everyone in his team. Uh, and is is very um, invested in them doing well. Uh, and he's kind of like a selfless guy to begin with. Uh, for example, like he spent, the first thing he did when he won the Tour de France was he bought a sports car because he's like 21 years old and a guy. And then he spent the rest of his money starting a juniors team at the, at the club that he was a part of up until he went to be uh, to UAE. Uh, and I was at that club when I was in Slovenia and interviewed their coach, uh, Mila Kinsilia, uh, Miha Kinsilia. And he was um, saying just, he said some really interesting things about junior racing and whatever. And like that, the point of like these teams is not to find the next today Pagacha, like, because really, I don't think today Pagacha can be replicated. I think um it's just, but that's just the type of guy that he is, you know, immediately, like the second he makes money, he puts it back into the sport in his own country. Um, that's, he's a really nice guy. Just like as a guy, he's a, a really nice guy. He's just a little bit stiff and awkward with the press. I mean, I don't think the press makes it easy on him either because it must be really difficult to get all, if you don't like attention to get all of that attention. Uh, I remember seeing also like Jonas Vingago really struggled with it uh, at the tour. Like, he, yeah, I got the feeling that he was very uncomfortable. <laughs> he was really great at the Which, beginning, I mean, but you know, yeah, uh, it was kind of painful. <laughs> well, physically, he's so interesting to me. I mean, physically, I almost feel like his tour is undersold. He was so good, so good. Um, but then, yeah, I, I wonder with how uncomfortable he was. You're like, how would he really hold up if he went into a tour as the leader? He's um, not ready. I guess we'll, we'll see it. Yeah, and I think maybe it's good. The timeline could work well for him. I have to assume Roglic is their leader next year. Yeah. Um, so it could be a few years before he's leading at a Tour de France. He could probably... Maybe like a... Yeah. He would probably lead at a less... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I would say probably like he would get his first chance at like a race like the Vuelta or like the, or the Giro. Um, and I think, you know, the thing the thing about, about Yumbo, which is like both good and bad is that like, they work very hard on media training for those guys to make them more 
comfortable around the press to give them sometimes really prepared answers, which was frustrating for us as journalists. But like, this is why also why Roglic is so great. He's kind of a loose cannon. Uh, even though he says the same stuff all the time, like there's times where he can like actually just like improvise and like be really dynamic and funny and charismatic. But a lot of these guys say like the same things in these press conferences because like, it's the same thing with like the Rod Ellingworth thing. The more consistency you can add into a bike racer's life, the easier their life will be. And talking to the press is really no exception. It's very interesting how different teams deal with the press. A lot of them, some of them are really guarded. Like Yumbo, they're really great about letting journalists talk to the press. Like, for example, like if I wanted to talk to Roglic during the Vuelta, there's not a lot of press at the Vuelta. And I could pretty much like get Roglic, like in, sometimes before a big mountain stage, it would be a little bit challenging. But I could pretty much like count on if I needed to talk to him, I could probably get him. Sometimes I would send my questions ahead of time being like, Hey, I just want to ask him about Slovenia national team. It's not going to take that long. Uh, and sometimes they'd be like, do you want Roglic today? And they're really like pretty good about it. Um, they were good at the tour about like letting Roglic talk to me. They were good at, about, um, I feel like they felt like I owed them one because the big profile wrote was very successful and did a lot to rehabilitate his image in the media. Um, and they were really great about like my first in-person interview with the cycles with Mike Tunison. And he was really, he's just a nice guy, super nice, just like happy guy. And then he, of course he crashes that day because the Opie and Omi crash, you know, just like, this was like a very rough introduction to bike racing. The first covering bike racing as a correspondent, the first week of the tour, because everyone was destroyed. Yeah. It was so bad. Yeah, it was, it's, I guess this year was bad, but I also have a theory that every year is bad. I we agree. just like block it out. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of discourse about that. I'm actually working on a, like a long form piece about it, about safety in the Peloton. Uh, Tony Martin has been especially outspoken about this, but also Mikorich, like Tom Scoines, Mikhail Kulikowski. Uh, I remember at the end of stage three, Stefan Koizweik going up to the commissaire's car and like really just tearing into them. Um being like, this is unacceptable. And it really was unacceptable. I mean, could you blame Roglic's crash on the parkour? Um, I don't think so. I think the parkour might have been cagier than they needed to be. But I don't think that particular crash was could be blamed on the parkour, but other crashes, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of discourse about whether Sonny Cobrelli deliberately crashed into Roglic. I, my truest belief, after interviewing everyone involved and, like, I truly believe that was an accident. Um, like that was yeah, just, that was I, just an I accident. Do, I do think it was an accident, but I'm also, I was shocked at how little respect him and Pogacar got in the Peloton in that first week. Like, I don't ever remember a defending champion. Like they were really fighting for wheels and like getting pushed around. Um, I mean, maybe that's good. Maybe it's good that like no one moves out of the way for good riders, but I just thought that was like a little bizarre. I don't couldn't ever remember seeing that before. Some writers thought that they were entitled, that Roglic and Pagacha were entitled, especially Roglic, um, that they were riding yeah, like I, that they were already in the yellow I would jersey, say as they, and they weren't. Yeah. But also the first week, it was like, I mean, you have to think about it, lots of storylines going on. Of course, Alaphilippe wants to win. It's France. He wants to be in the yellow jersey. Stage one, he is. Vanderpool with his with you know his tribute to his grandfather and everything that was really emotional. Van Art has his own thing going on. Um, I mean, the first week was really for those guys. Pagacha and Roglic being up there was just a coincidence in that like these early stages were had really punchy finishes that they could do well on. Um, it was that first week was really all about 
they crafted for like the Alaphilippe's, the, the the big showman of of um, one day racing. And every every stage that week, I felt like was raced like a one day, including the time trial, which was uh, insane. That was an insane time trial. Uh, that was actually one of my favorite stages of the tour. Was that stage five time trial? Because um, it was crazy. Because like Stefan Kuhn like almost cried. Uh, he really couldn't believe that he got beaten by Tadej Pogacar, who just absolutely destroyed that time trial. He was like, I want to be in the yellow jersey, like, for more than one day. And can you blame him? Uh, and, you know, no. Vanderpool hanging I, I on also, like, was also insane. When are riders going to stop being surprised that they get beat by Tadej Pogacar in Tour de France time trials? <laughs> he's He's kind of shown us that he is maybe the best time trialist in the world. That one was really tours. surprising, actually, because it was flatter than... Uh, it was a flat time trial, uh, and he usually excels on hilly time trials, like Roglic. Um, so, like, this was really supposed to be... Um, but, you know, Jonas Vingegaard also did good on that time... did well on that time trial. It was... I, everyone just, I think put like a hundred percent even Roglic came in sec- seventh and he was like torn up still uh he was uh he was truly vibing that after that crash uh he's just like kind of hanging on and then when he got dropped on stage seven it was like yeah okay uh it's over but you know he was he was he was kind of vibing he like knew it was kind of he was he knew it was over stage three but he uh he was had a good attitude about it i think i mean you have to because uh it was sad. I don't know. It was just an accident, too. It was, like, the worst part. People were like, oh, Rodley forgot how to ride a bike because he didn't race for all those weeks. I don't think that's true. He's never been a particularly no, great never... bike handler, but, I mean, that was just a stupid accident. I mean, uh, and Cobrelli, it's so funny about Cobrelli, actually. People get the impression of Sonny Cobrelli that he's, like, a mean guy. He kind of looks like a mean guy. He's, like, this big he does look like a mean guy. Italian yeah. guy. But he's actually just, like, uh, and he's like made some like uncol like colorful uh, like distasteful political comments like in the past on Facebook or whatever. But like to be honest, with you, he's just like a small town Italian guy, and he's actually really nice. Um, and, and all of his teammates swear by him. They say he's like the nicest guy in the world. Like, and the reason why he was never that great is more said the reason he was never good at as a sprinter is because he was too big of a of a like softy to like be aggressive to fight for position he would just like give yeah. up position and more was just like come on sonny be a man <laughs> but i think it's worked out for him it it's uh he's found his niche as uh i'll just win roubaix I, you know i'll be maybe the most impressive rider at the tour de france and not win a stage and then i'll win a monument later in the year he's so smart cobrelli that- as a cyclist too like he's really he's a really a great te- tactician this Rupe win was really a masterclass in like these oh the, these two scrappy guys Vanderpool who's expected to win and who was it Vermeesh who is like this underdog like these guys and like are going to like pull because they are desperate. I'm Sonny Cobrelli. Yeah. I am not desperate, and I have a habit of just sitting in the wheel. And if they want to pull me, that's fine. I'll do my turn for like two seconds and then like get back in the wheel. And it's like, what are you gonna do? Like tell them to screw off? No, he's just gonna sit there. Like he doesn't care. Uh, and it just came down to when I, when I saw them enter the velodrome, I knew, I knew Cobrelli was going to win. Like, I knew that the other two guys had worked just way harder than him the entire day. And like, it, he just like was saving energy and just waiting patiently in the wings. And like, you know, in a bunch sprint, he's like a little bit weak, but in like a three, uh, three like matchup, like he's not bad. So it was, it was not a surprising win. I actually thought it was a really satisfying win. Uh, 
because the other two wins, the other two contests, I felt like I wrote my Blue Bay piece for Cycling News. It was too on the nose. Like Vanderpool winning, too on the nose, expected. Vermeesh winning, too on the nose, epic underdog story. Cabrelli winning is like right in the middle. It's like Goldilocks of victories. It's like, you know, he's obviously like on a great form. He's obviously like a really good classics writer. I mean, uh, and he was just the smartest guy. He wasn't the strongest guy in that sprint. I think Vanderpool was definitely stronger than him, but he was the smartest. And sometimes that's how bike racing works. You don't win by just muscling your way through. You win by being clever. Uh, underappreciated. Yeah, and I was surprised. The one place I would not want to see Sonny Cabrelli is like a reduced uh, velodrome sprint. I was surprised how Vanderpool seemed happy to, to take him there. I think if he could do that again, maybe he would do it differently. But uh, he, yeah, Cabrelli, so you don't want to ever race like a seasoned you know, even if he's a failed sprinter, like a sprinter yeah. on a track, yeah. like, like no way do you, do you want to face up with him there? Um, I have one more question with you before I have to go, but what, so 2022 Tour de France, what do you think happens? I assume it, it has to be a Roglic versus Pogac. I hope we get our showdown finally, our clean Roglic Pogacar showdown. Do you agree? I don't know, man. The fact that they put cobbles in the first week, it's like not great for <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm almost more worried about Denmark. I don't know, like Denmark is like traffic island, sure, like road furniture, like Mecca. Yeah. That could get a little, I, I, I like, just hope he gets out of Denmark. I, I don't know about the 2022 Tour de France, to be honest with you. Uh, I uh, personally, like in my opinion, I would really like to see Roglic do the Giro, uh, or Pogaccio do the Giro, or like some one of these guys. Please just do the Giro. Um, like I know it's not going to happen. They're going to just like keep going on this battle forever. I think like Pogaccio is the better bike handler, so he might just survive again. To be honest with you, it's going to be that first week again. They keep piling on these like really nasty stages in the first. They didn't learn anything from from last year. And so, like, I think if Roglic stays on his bike and he doesn't, you know, crash, uh, I think, yeah, this could go all the way to the end and it will be, like, a really great battle. But I'm not really that excited for it, to be honest with you. Uh, I know that's blasphemy. Uh, I know it's the tour. I sometimes, I'm even debating whether I'll go to the tour this year. Uh, it's just sometimes the thing about Roglic and Pagasha for me is that sometimes it's just so hard to watch, uh, especially if you like both of them. It's like they both try like so hard and only one of them can win. You really like kind of want both of them to win. Uh, I really want Radlich to win a Tour de France. I don't know if this one, I, I personally, if I were him, I would skip this year and like see what they come up with next year. <laughs> this is a hot take. I know. I know. I really don't. Like, I, think constant, <laughs> I think the constant. He's like 32 years old. I know. but the, He's got to go. No, I think he's different. I think he started late enough that like he can skip a year. I'm sorry. Uh, I think that Roglic himself is a big experiment to see what happens when you start cycling later in life. I think he's got like plenty of years left on his legs. I really don't think he's going to just, he shows no signs of weakness at all, despite being 32. I mean, he's, he's probably getting stronger. He, this was the strongest. Um, I think in the Vuelta, this, he yeah, was this last year was his best year in, in the Vuelta. He was probably, if we had his power data, 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 I think we would see that he was probably as strong as Pogacar was at the tour, if not a little bit stronger. He, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, there could be something to that. Yeah, I definitely, at the Vuelta, he was insane. Like, when that stage he won over Bernal was an insane 
performance. That was insane. Yeah. I remember I, I was there at the top of the mountain when he came in and like let out his scream and he stopped like right in front of me and just like stared at me. He was just like, he was like in a primal mode of like, I'm wrong. <laughs> he was like, his face was like feet red. He's just like, like, he just like was like, yes, yeah, screw all of you. I'm going to win the Vuelta. Like, you know, it was, uh, it was just unbelievably strong that year. And he, he was so, he was so different than he was in the tour. And the tour is like kind of demure and bashful and like, oh, you know, it's still. and then well that he was like, I'm Roglic. I'm really funny. <laughs> he was, fu- I, he was my, funny. Only, I would, he was, I do remember the cycling podcast trying to decipher this. Like what, what does the funny mean? Does it mean he's bluffing? <laughs> At some points they were reading a little bit too much into it. It was like, no, he's just very good right now. And he, is probably not worried about losing this race. He's not going to lose that race. No way. I mean, no. it was like Bernal's having issues with his back. And he like, I kind of got the impression Bernal, this is just a chore for him. Uh, and, you know, there wasn't really like a serious contender that could take Roglic in the time trial. Uh, even if like Emmerich Mass had minutes over him, like Roglic could just take all that time back in the, in the final time trial. Like, yeah, you'd have to have yeah, minutes. I mean, minutes. That, he passed him. At, he passed him and he didn't need to exactly he really needed to that could have gotten ugly he was it was so funny and also i remember the day that he came into the mix zone uh at santiago de compostela and he was like someone asked him like do you think uh do you wish Pogaccio was here and he was like oh uh, no <laughs> <laughs> he's like he's like completely baffled by this question it's like why would i want that you know yeah why why would that be appealing yeah. Uh, I think one one pushback I'd have to your skip the tour theory is you oftentimes can get too cute with it. I think Tom Dumoulin was really plagued by this throughout his prime where skip the tour so much to the Giro, but for riders like that, the Giro is so hard. I mean, the Giro is hard for anyone. It's an unpredictable disaster. Yeah. It's just like, the it, Giro looks is easy. it looks like a, yeah, it looks like a clean run on paper. And then it's like, you don't want to be anywhere near that thing. So as a, as like a time trialist who can climb where it's like, I don't know. I almost think at some point he has to stop crashing to the tour. Yeah. <laughs> I think if you go enough, you will not crash. Maybe. I think like, I really think that if he survives the first week, he absolutely could contend. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, I definitely think that he could win the tour. Obviously he and Pagacha, I'd say Pagacha, the, the difference between Pagacha and Roglic is mental. Uh, I would say physically, like on a good days, they're pretty much equal. Uh, they have like individual strengths uh, compared to the other, but I'd say they're like, as someone who knows both of them and has watched them and observed them and written about them as cyclists, I'd say that they are just as good as the other. And, but the difference is of course, Pagacha is young. Roglic is not young. Pogaccia's whole life has been bike racing. Roglic has lived a lot of life that is not bike racing. Uh, and he like is a person outside of, of bike racing in a way Pogaccia isn't because Pogaccia is a 21 or 22 year old kid or whatever. And you're not, uh, you're not anyone at 22. No offense. Like you are still extremely young. A lot of your like attributes have not been developed yet. I mean, when I was 22, I was like a music school, like now I'm a cycling journalist. So just goes to show you, life comes at you fast. Uh, but the real difference between the two of them is that it's really a mental difference. And this, I wrote an essay about this. Uh, it's the last essay I published on Derailer. 
which was that Roglic, he cares about winning. Um, and Pogaccia kind of doesn't. Uh, of course, Pogaccia, it's nice when he wins, obviously. But, like, as you saw in, like, I don't know, Milano Torino or whatever, when he, like, had, like, stomach problems and, like, was kind of suffering and he knew, like, Lombardia was coming up, he just decided to pop wheelies for fan and DNF, you know? That's really the difference yeah. between him and Roglic. Like, Roglic takes every single opportunity to win, and if he knows he can win, he's just going to burn it until he does. It doesn't matter that Lombardia is coming up. Like, if he wants to win Milano Torino, he wants to win Giro Media. You know, like, why not win those? It was obviously that he was the best. And he was just like, and did he end up cooked for Lombardia? Yeah, but that was his choice. Uh, he could have played it a lot smarter, like Pogaccia, and really just kind of, like, dicked around. No offense to today. Uh, but, you know, he didn't. But Roglic cares about winning. And Pogaccia, to be honest with you, he just likes to ride a bike. Really, that is his, he's a simple person. And Mohar said he was a simple person. That he's just, he cares about one thing which is riding a bike. And even if he loses, at least he got to ride his bike. Uh, and, and Roglic, of course, I think Roglic enjoys being a cyclist. In fact, I actually think Roglic enjoys suffering. I don't even think, I think he enjoys suffering regardless of whether or not it's on a bike. I think ski jumping, not an easy sport, requires like a certain kind of like mental stamina that is unfathomable to me, someone afraid of heights. And he, but I think he, he enjoys cycling but he also enjoys like lots of other things. He still really he like he still really likes to ski. For example, he always looks forward to the winter to go cross country skiing. Um, and it's just not his only thing in life. Uh, and he has a really different attitude about it. Uh, winning is very important to him, and he focuses himself very hard to 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 win at specific things or to achieve specific goals. And it is this achievement and this kind of this drive to continue to achieve that really sets him apart mentally from Pogaccia. Fortunately for Roglic, he also has the mental stamina to realize that to not, first of all, not like hang on to any of his wins as being precious. And second of all, like if he loses, he also mentally can just move on. But for him, the mental pressure, I think is much greater to win than it is for Pogaccia. Not just because of the expectations of his country, but I think it's like an internal thing. And I think it also fuels him. Uh, I think it's a double-edged sword. Uh, on the one hand, it drives him to be competitive, but on the other hand, it can sometimes sabotage him as well. Uh, a lot of people suspect that he cracks mentally. I don't think that's true in the same way that other people do, but I think that also, you know, there, Pogaccia has that extra element, the extra support of just loving bike racing uh, and loving riding a bike and like loving this, this thirst for just being alive and being like a young kid that that keeps him, I think, psychologically stronger. Um, he like is serene as he's never stressed. He's just absolutely calm. Uh, and I think Roglic is a lot more normal. I think Roglic is a lot more normal to how most of us would behave in high stress situations. Um, and Pagatra is a freak <laughs> in that he is just that calm, that serene, that easygoing that placid that you know of course he has the drive to win but it's just different um and that's really what sets them apart is the psychology of of and that's what sets a lot of people apart i think true champions like pagacha and roglic they have to be kind of merciless like roglic has no qualms about like annihilating adam yates in an uphill sprint he has no qualms about it 
he has, yeah, you have to have like that, that mercilessness to be a champion, but you also have to have, um, but Pagacha is just something else entirely psychologically. I mean, he is absolutely serene. Um, and to the fact where it's like kind of bizarre, like how can you be so calm in these like extremely high stress situations? Because he knows that he's really good. And if he has a bad day, it's like, whatever, there are just other days, which sounds so simple. Yeah, it I sounds think- like something you can tell a child, right? It's like, it's like, it's like, it's like, or you get broken up with. It's like, how there are plenty of other fish in the sea, but it doesn't feel like that. You know, it doesn't feel like there are other days. If you lost like a bike race, it feels terrible. Like, even when I get like third place on Zwift, I'm like pissed about it, you know? Uh, and that's the difference between him and everyone else is that there's just always another day just lives in the moment which sounds it sounds so cliche it sounds like so so stupidly like asinine but it's just true he just lives in the moment it's it's that's his secret that is like the secret to his success i do think um if i was trying to devise a plan as a team to maybe topple him at the tour that would also be what i would drill on drill drill in on i think we saw at the tour of the Basque country that the living in the moment can sometimes be exploited where we're 50k from the finish at the top of a climb why would i why me worry and then it's like oh wait no now roglic and his yumbo team is riding away from me oops well, race is over yeah well, so he was like working it is for like a super McNulty. it was a very confused like team strategy that lost that race because like it's so funny pagasha still managed to get third in that race just by like making up all that time in like that last stage with like Bingo Goat on his wheel. And that was really the moment where like Bingo Goat was like, okay, like Bingo Goat is yeah. like keeping up with today Pagacha. Like he's going to be good this season. Even if he won a stage in UAE tour, like that was really the moment where everyone was like, whoa, this kid, like <laughs> who's this Danish kid? Well, Kate, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and, and giving your insight into these, uh, I think like historically good writers and not just um, the, the two GC stars, but like Matt Motorich and, um, perhaps some upcoming Slovenian writers too. So I hope to um, continue getting like mainlining your content, your Slovenian based content. <laughs> I think it's, it's really insightful. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry. I like to talk forever about this stuff. Like it's like my favorite thing to talk about ever. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I, I love talking about it too. Before you go plug your newsletter. Oh yeah. Cool. Yeah. You should subscribe to derailer.net. Derailer likes the type of part of the bike and .net as in .net. Uh, we have content. Uh, we have a column coming up uh, by Joe Laverick, who rides for Higgins Action Berman, uh, the Axel Merck development team. And uh, we also have race recaps from earlier in the year that we're revisiting things like the Vuelta Stage 20, which really deserves its own uh, own really thorough look through because it was insane. Uh, and also interviews with guys from Pokey Team, uh, possibly Edith Schelling. Uh, and more. So yeah, check that out. Great. Well, thank you for coming on and I'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Well, it was great to have Kate on. I hope everyone enjoyed that conversation and I'll be back next week with the regularly scheduled program, kind of breaking down a few things I've been working on lately and have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.